Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. We should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personally. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Retro Spectating 1999 American Beauty. Matt, this is a, this is a big one. This is a meaty one. This is a big one, and this is a complicated one. I hope you're ready to do some tap dancing and some ice skating. <laughs> oh, I am. You know me. Uh, very nuanced, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> so we have a plan, and, and, and you, you've concocted this, and I think it's a spectacular plan. Oh, good. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the controversial stuff, start with the spacey stuff, and then once we get that sort of out of the way, we can then move into the movie and sort of try to, try to discuss it in a vacuum, contextualize it, and talk about it based on its own merits instead of sort of having to have this this recent history infect our opinions on the movie itself does that sound right to you matt yeah i mean you know maybe someday we can dedicate an entire impassioned episode to the subject of you know separating art from artist or separating art from history or you know maybe we could just dig deep into that and the kinds of films that are problematic and the kinds of filmmakers that are problematic i feel like that's a larger philosophical discussion that maybe we could dedicate ourselves to someday but just for the purposes of this particular series i think we're a little more interested in what how these films reflect the year 1999 as opposed to how they reflect what has gone on in the lives of the filmmakers or the actors more recently right i mean we can't ignore this kind of stuff and we we won't ignore it you know just because we're trying to be respectful to Mm -hmm. people who have dealt with with trauma or dealt with assault and all that stuff needs to be taken seriously but i feel like we try to steer ourselves a little more towards trying to uh, look at art in a little bit more of a vacuum right i mean that may not necessarily be everybody's preferred way of doing this but that that is a little more of our brand right i don't want to put words in your words in your mouth if you don't feel the same way looking at this movie now we're, we're not going to ignore you can't ignore you know how a movie has aged over the years right and maybe what was seen one way 20 years ago is going to be seen another way 20 years later but i think we can still do that with sort of eliminating the the extracurriculars if you will because they do sort of dovetail with sort of modern sensibilities versus you know what was acceptable in 1999 right and this particular film singular from i don't know seven or the usual suspects or you know k-pax even you know beyond <laughs> the sea there's plenty of films in, in kevin spacey's oeuvre that i feel like people could 
talk about in mixed company and it wouldn't uh, elicit so much uh, collar loosening, right? I mean, the fact that the subject matter here dovetails in such a fascinating way with things that have gone on in his personal life or things he's been accused of, it, this mm-hmm. movie just kind of becomes a bit of a, a bit of a perfect storm, a bit of a lightning rod, right? For better or for worse. So I say we just get into it because the crux of this movie is that Lester Burnham wants to improve himself in order to have sex with his daughter's underage best friend. Uh, yeah, that is that is part of the narrative. <laughs> that's one of the narrative elements of this film, to be, to be sure. And even the trailers were pretty explicit about that in 1999. Yeah, and that is an uncomfortable you know premise for, for one of the storylines in this movie. Given what we know about Kevin Spacey, the scenes where he's salivating over Mina Suvari are extraordinarily uncomfortable, I feel, especially the sort of uh, the fantasy scenes uh, that are peppered throughout the movie. So, you know, you can't ignore the fact that what we know about Spacey makes those scenes even weirder upon rewatch. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how you felt watching those. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to point out that he has, you know, certainly been accused by by many uh, victims of uh, inappropriate and illegal activity over the years. And uh, though he hasn't been, I don't believe he's been convicted of any of the things he's been accused of. Certainly more than one person has come out and has accused him of being a sexual predator. And at this point, he's basically persona non grata because obviously as a society, we take these things very, very seriously. And he may never get to come back again his his career may potentially be over and i don't know i mean hollywood does tend to have a bit of a shorter memory they do like a comeback story they do potentially forgive more so than than other industries but it will be interesting to see whether he ever comes back from whether he's convicted of this whether he does jail time or not the court of public opinion has kind of made up its mind it seems at this point his pursuit in this film is towards an illegal act yes and um and it does it does complicate matters for sure. I mean, part of Alan Ball's premise here and part of Alan Ball's approach is obviously to provoke and to explore taboo, right? I mean, this movie is is transgressive, or at least is attempting to be transgressive. But there's yeah, an enormous difference between that on screen, you know, in a fictional setting, you know, whether it's you know Nabokov's Lolita or or this, or we can explore those kinds of things in a fictional setting. As soon as that stuff bleeds over into real life activities, that's obviously uh, going to be a big problem for how we um, how we. Re- act and how we feel about these artists yeah and you know i think a big part of the script and the story is what alan ball is doing is extrapolating out feelings that bored suburbanites might have or might think and then turning those into real life acts like people are acting upon desires that would normally stay sort of squelched down within their being um and so in that way if you you think of like oh these are just thoughts that people would usually have it's not unreasonable to think that a dad would lust over in his private mind the friend of his daughter or whatever just the the difference here in, in the way he's provoking and being transgressive is to you know make these things uh, real within the confines of the story. And that the film is sort of making the audience a little bit complicit in this, right? Mm -hmm. Like the film is asking you to explore your own moral feelings about all of this, right? I mean, he is our protagonist, the same way that Humbert Humbert was our protagonist when reading Lolita. And the film is asking you to sort of like turn a mirror on yourself to see how, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about him? Are you disgusted by this? Are you intrigued by this? Do you, do you hope he achieves his goal because that is his goal? 
or uh, do you hope he does the right thing, whatever the right thing is? I, I think that's provocative, and I think that's interesting, and I think that's something that great art has done throughout history, and I think he's 100% an anti-hero because what he's attempting to do is obviously socially and legally undesirable, right? Yeah, I mean, tonally, I think that's something that Alan Ball and Sam Mendes actually pull off in this movie. Is sure. Not, not, it's not that it's pure anti-hero, and it's not that they're really championing any of these acts, but they do give these characters who are, you know, thinking bad things and doing bad things whether it's you know the voyeuristic tendencies of Bentley or the sort of general bitchiness of Annette Benning or you know Lester Burnham's lust for a underage woman they give all these characters moments to shine and they and they paint them in good light throughout the movie not necessarily you know in their worst moments but you know y- you are supposed to at least make up your own mind about them and how many times throughout the history of popular cinema have you know suburbanite characters or characters who, who have always quote unquote done the right thing decide to break bad right I mean that's yeah. that's the entire that's the, the entire premise of breaking bad is you know <laughs> someone who comes from suburbia and decides to change their life by doing something illegal how many films are there where a suburbanite becomes a, a drug runner becomes an assassin and more often than not you know unless it's a true story you know unless it's Goodfellas or you know Boogie Nights or something or there has to be an eventual fall how often do these films just kind of uh, celebrate characters doing illegal things because it represents them taking control of their life and uh, you know doing something that society may deem irresponsible or illegal but in the context of this character sort of taking control of their life it becomes uh, an act of defiance and an act of like self-actualization right right in, in this case because it's a sexual act it becomes very, very messy. <laughs> what, what you're talking about is the the symbolic triumph of the act of doing something that you're not expected to do or just breaking out of your sort of boring, you know, live six decades in the same place and die sort of act, right? The, this film does some, you know, takes some relatively unsubtle visual stabs at showing Lester as somebody who is who is trapped, for, for lack of a better word. Like he's constantly shown behind bars, within frames, within, you know, even the shower that he's masturbating in ends up looking like a cell, right? The suburban malaise, the suburban entrapments, all that stuff. I mean, my first note while watching this movie is that all this NUE is a little on the nose here, right? Yeah, but are you are you saying that it feels on the nose in the, because you've now had 20 years worth of sort of copycats? Or did, yeah, did you mean, feel that way in 1999? Because I mean, I, I really feel like this is this movie is kind of invoking a lot of kind of Douglas, you know, Serkian, Douglas Sirk stuff. Sure. When this movie came out, it seemed pretty groundbreaking and, and pretty provocative, but it was still treading on relatively well-tread territory, I would say. But but you're saying it feels kind of hackneyed today in terms of how on the nose the ennui is? Yeah, and, and I'm not sure it's just because there's a lot of American Beauty copycats. And we can get into why I feel it's sort of maybe uh, not as profound as it wants to be later on. But uh, let's let's both go back to 1999 and how we felt about this movie then. Let's do it. Because I think that's a good starting point. I, as a budding cinephile, I feel like I start a lot of these podcasts. Well, that's what like you that. that's what you yeah. were in 1999. Sure. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I thought this was an absolute masterpiece. The the paragon of art house cinema. I fucking loved it and crowed about it to anyone who would listen. Yeah, I thought it was incredible. I was just thinking back. I was having a conversation with like one of my parents' friends, two adults, and I remember them saying, ah, they thought it was all right. And I just thinking, knowing that they were insane and they just didn't <laughs> get it. And I was a, you know, I was a 17-year-old and I understood how, how deep and profound this movie was. So I was totally, totally on board. Probably saw it, you know, a handful of times within the first couple of years it came out, but probably haven't watched it in 10, 12 
12 years. So that's where I was at. Yeah, this movie was was a pretty big deal for me. It definitely felt like one of those films that was sort of a discovery where I felt like I was ever so slightly ahead of the curve on this one. You know, like I was the person going to my parents and telling them they had to see this movie. I actually saw it with my mother and my aunt in the theater, which in retrospect sounds a little bit cringy and a little uncomfortable. But at the time it was like, no, no, this is profound. Like, yes, there's sexuality and there's nudity and there's some things that might be a little uncomfortable to watch with your mom, but this is important. Like, everybody needs to see this movie. (laughs) It's going to win Best Picture. And, you know, ultimately I was proven right in that. But at the time it was like, yeah, to a 16-year-old 17 year old Matt Knutson I was like this is this is one of the not only one of the greatest films I've ever seen up to this point this point in my life this might be one of the greatest films ever made yeah. right I mean it felt it's that, an important it, movie it felt important in retrospect important to a 16 year old is kind of relative Indeed. but as I've said before on this podcast uh, I was working in a movie theater that year and my you know my first hint of what was to come was seeing the original trailer for the film before I saw the sixth sense in the theater and you know people forget back in those days when you saw the trailer in the theater that was the first time you saw the trailer and you know with few exceptions you hadn't been reading about the you know the production of American Beauty on you know with all due respect to Ain't It Cool News Ain't It Cool News wasn't really covering the new Sam Mendes Alan Ball joint yeah and if you wanted to watch a new trailer you were you were downloading a 300 megabyte QuickTime file from Ain't It Cool News or whatever yeah and it it was always away from computer for two hours yeah yeah and earliest it was weeks after the trailer had already come out in theaters my point is that like when you saw a trailer in the theater you were seeing a trailer in the theater and that was oftentimes your first your introduction and so seeing that trailer with that with the who's Bob O'Reilly you know and I was basically just getting introduced to the who that year that was the year when I like (laughs) discovered who's next because Bob O'Reilly was also in Spike Lee's Summer of Sam uh, and that film the climax of that movie features uh, won't get fooled again so like I was just just sort of starting my who uh, obsession that year and so the fact that Bob O'Reilly was the was the climactic song in that trailer it it fucking blew my mind I was like oh my god this is a big deal I've never heard of Sam Mendes or Alan Ball (laughs) I certainly knew you know was familiar with DreamWorks and had even heard that Spielberg uh, had been a producer on the film and obviously I was familiar with Spacey one of the managers who worked at the movie theater I was working at had actually been at the Toronto International Film Festival and seen one of the early screenings and he came back for I don't know you know back in those days maybe they invited certain you know theater owners or theater managers or maybe he just went there on his own dime I don't know Uh, but he came back from Toronto raving about this thing and he had posters he had like arms full of American Beauty posters that he was passing out to everybody and he gave me one and so I actually had the poster for American Beauty before I'd even seen the film and I was like I I, this I don't even know like I have no context for this there's never been a film like this that I feel like is going to be so important having not even seen it yet, and yet it's an R-rated film, it's an adult film, it's going to explore these adult themes. Kevin Spacey's, you know, not a movie star, but he's somebody I recognize. Obviously, I'm a usual Suspects fan by this point, and a LA Confidential fan, and just a lot of things sort of coming together and and sort of coalescing for me. Even with my crazy high expectations, the movie exceeded them. You know, I was there opening night, and yeah. uh, and I thought it was just a fucking capital M masterpiece. It, it absolutely it, it blew my mind. Yeah, and, you know, obviously a lot of critics felt the same way, too. By the way, I love that you had 17-year-old Matt Knudsen had a TIFF guy. You got word from Toronto <laughs> about this movie. That's incredible. Well, I'm sure they're the, the exact same. Yeah, I'm sure you could have just opened up Variety that week and gotten the exact same <laughs> tip. But yeah, at, at the time, this guy, you know, sort of taking me aside and handing me this American Beauty poster and being like, hey, this movie's going to be this movie's going to be a big deal. It's one of the most, I mean, it, he was he was using hyperbole. You know, he was saying it's like it's one of the most incredible films I've ever seen. Well, let's circle back to the present, Matt. Do you still feel it's one of the most incredible movies you've ever seen? No, but I was surprised on my recent viewing, having not watched it in probably in at least a decade, I would say, conservatively. 
I was surprised at how well I thought it still worked because I had sort of gotten myself emotionally prepared for the fact, you know, taking all these things into account and hearing all the sort of recent backlash, you know, even independent of the whole spacey situation. I'd say over the last... Yeah, about the last decade or so, the last five or six years even, there has been a re-evaluation of the film as one of the most overrated and undeserving Best Picture winners of all time, Mm -hmm. which is crazy considering how universally beloved it was when it came out and the fact that when it won Best Picture, in my recollection, it was very much a sort of collective, universal, industry-wide, yeah, that's right. That's 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 the best film of the year. We we got it right. Everybody agrees. This, there there is a you know there's nothing controversial about that film winning Best Picture at the time. Its closest competitor was Cider House Rules, which is really yeah. a movie that doesn't exist anymore. No, not at all. But people have started talking about this film in the same breath as you know Crash and and talking about how it uh, it hasn't aged very well and that it uh, didn't deserve to win and that in light of everything that's w- w- with Spacey and this subject matter and Me Too and just all this reevaluation has pointed to this film being incredibly dated and um, as a result incredibly irrelevant in the grand scheme of things and I was fully prepared to react that way to it the other night and I gotta say I don't I don't know if I'd use the capital M masterpiece word anymore but I think this movie still works really really well and I think the things sorry there's a helicopter flying over the, <laughs> the things that it sets out to do it does so in a very provocative way the performances are great across the board even though some of the characters are quite broad and quite silly and quite uh, stock I would mm-hmm. say I still think it's very funny and beautiful for lack of a more eloquent term and I think it's still extraordinarily watchable I, I was surprised how much I liked it. Disagree with me. I, I disagree with you a bit. I mean, I, I do think it is, you know, pretty darn watchable. I mean, Sam Mendes is really going forward here in his debut. Um, and it's a, it's a good looking movie. That's for sure. Yep. The great um, and, uh, Conrad Hall. Yes. And the cast is uniformly terrific. I think this is Mina Suvari's best work by far. Um, Annette Benning is a little screechy. I feel like talk about broad characters, you know, the, the closet military man. That's definitely a stock character. Yeah. At this point. But Chris Cooper makes it work because he's Chris Cooper. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but in terms of it feeling dated and irrelevant, I, I get that. But again, I think this movie is really a sign of the time. Right. Like, I think it has to do more with like in 1999, the economy was doing pretty well. We're at the end of the Clinton years. Society is relatively stable. Technology's coming on. Internet boom, all this stuff. And everyone's doing fine. And when everyone's doing fine, you have to find other problems. Right. Sure. And those problems are sort of banal suburban issues. Right. And so I feel like in, in terms of looking at it through today's prism, none of these people's problems seem all that problematic right like just just get over yourselves guys you're just bored yo you're just in a shitty marriage that sort of thing so i, I the, the the profundity that came along with it in 1999 i just don't think it you know sort of hold serve 20 years later that's not to say it's the fault of the film i think like i said i think it's just a, a movie where you plant a stake in 1999 and see say this is what the times were like then these are the things we were worried about in sort of upper white middle class culture and yeah it, it, it's kind of the same feeling i get when i watch something like dead poet society man okay where it's like the it, it feels weird to 
try to care about these people's problems when they're all pretty well off and, and doing fine. And it, it, I, I don't care. Like, I just don't, I don't really care about, about what these people are going through. So it, it's hard to get too invested in the movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Although I think that a movie only has to fulfill its own promise. It only has to contend with the problems that exist within the universe it's creating, right? Of, of, of course, you know, but but when it's meant to extrapolate out on these humongous themes about what, what is life and yeah. does life matter, like, like that's where it gets a little sticky. Yeah, I mean, this movie is set up to be an examination of suburban and we and the way that these basically three families on the street are, are dealing with it and interacting with each other, and that's fine and that's enough, but I think you're right in that the movie actually wants to sort of ruminate on the meaning of life. Yes. <laughs> so perhaps it doesn't achieve such high, you know, asp- such a high aspirational plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it maybe seemed more profound for a 16-year-old because they only had 16 years worth of <laughs> context to draw from. Although, you know, the film won Best Picture. Critics uniformly seemed to love it. My parents were both, you know, big fans of it, and they certainly had a lot more uh, context than I did. So, you know, it, it, were we all duped by it? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if if the film is saying necessarily saying anything profound about life, but the subject matter it's exploring, I think it's doing so in a provocative and effective way. It's, it's asking, you know, what it means to be complete it's asking what it means to be to feel fulfilled to be happy is is the pursuit of a goal the meaning of life is does is does having something to pursue ultimately make human beings feel fulfilled you know what is life if not the pursuit of a goal It, it turns out in this case what he's pursuing is deeply unhealthy and illegal. But yeah. the fact that he has something to pursue does end up making him a more fulfilled human being, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I suppose that's right. I mean, but that's only with his character. Like, what are we to derive from Wes Bentley? What are we to derive from, from Annette Benning's character? I, I think this is asking a lot of questions and sort of clouding it in this profound fog, but it doesn't really amount to much in the end, in my estimation. Like, I, I don't think it it offers any semblance of answers. I know that's fine to not give, you know, the answers. But again, like, okay, if it's about the pursuit of happiness or meaning, no one goes trying, no, no one is on, you know, going in the right direction to find that. And because they're not going in that right direction, nobody finds it. So you don't think that Spacey, you don't think that Lester Burnham achieves sort of zen? You don't think that the, the, the climax of the film is Lester Burnham sort of finding that perfect balance and as a result his life must end he has to be equalized because he's now sort of like he's transcended that's how, that's the way I always kind of read it I, I'm just going to reject the idea that we're supposed to take meaning from a guy almost boning a 16 year old and then deciding not to only because she admits to being a virgin right like th- that should not be like a an ascension of any kind you know personally like that's I, I, I don't know what we would have to like th- so you th- that's a lot of gymnastics to like get to oh he found meaning through self-improvement well so it's about her telling him something that makes him like you would need in order to feel that the character could be redeemed he would need to come to the conclusion that he shouldn't go through with this on his own not based on some on, on new information that she's giving him it's not that important of a character moment to me like he was clearly going to have 
sex with this underage woman and we're supposed to say that oh you know for the last 20 minutes of his life after he decided not to he's achieved some sort of zen i don't know that feels a little specious to me one of the readings of the film uh, that i've come across recently is that it's it's actually two parallel kind of incest fantasies Mm -hmm. it's um it's lester's incestuous incestuous interest in his daughter jane personified by his pursuit of his daughter's best friend, uh, Angela. Okay. Simultaneously, it is Colonel Frank Fitz's um, homosexual lust for his son, Ricky, mm-hmm. which ends up being projected onto his lust for Lester Burnham. Okay. You know, there, there's, there's obviously different ways to interpret incest fantasies throughout fiction, you know, throughout mythology or whatever. And this is planting it in a very, very specific, you know, real contemporary place, which problematizes it a little bit. But I do think it's kind of interesting to think of the fact that Lester, once Lester starts thinking of Angela from a fatherly standpoint, as opposed to a lustful, incestuous, lustful standpoint, when he starts thinking of her as a daughter, when he hears that she's a virgin, immediately retracts, recoils, wraps her in a blanket, and then makes her a sandwich. Now that he's started thinking of her that way, he's not thinking of his daughter in a lustful way anymore. He's now thinking like a father. Okay, right? great. So that that's so that's him. That that's him. Sort of like finally achieving his fatherliness. He had to go in a roundabout way to find it, but now that he's finally achieved it and potentially could become a better father, then that's the end of his journey. Sure. I mean, but his journey throughout the film feels like it has very little to do with him being a better father, right? It's sort of, it's inward. It's about him becoming a better, more dynamic, and literally physically stronger person, right? Yeah, well, it's about him. That's his journey. Yeah, it's about him searching for something. It's about him realizing that something is missing. It's about Mm -hmm. him realizing that, that something has to change. That there must yeah. be a change in his life. The things that he does to change are not necessarily healthy, even if he is getting himself in, you know, quote unquote, better shape or whatever. But the yeah. fact that he is endeavoring to change, that's what every great protagonist has to do, right? Otherwise, you have no journey. Otherwise, you know, Joseph Campbell would <laughs> he would backhand you, right? Yeah, well, so, so th- this is interesting and, and something I noticed. There really isn't an inciting incident in this movie. Like, we don't see him struggling with suburban, you know, mundanity, right? He... He comes out of the gates rebelling. Right? Uh, is his first it, dialogue scene talking shit to his to his uh, superior at work? Like he's immediately sort of on the up, right? Um, I mean, he definitely lashes out, or or at least he sows the seeds. He lets us know that he knows something that he could potentially use later on as blackmail material. I think that that's just a that's just a narrative thing. That's just a screenwriting thing. I don't think it's actually him doing anything proactive. I think sure. I think the inciting incident of the film is is the um, basketball game when he first sees Angela. Like that's right. him. That, that that I think that's the moment when he realizes there's something missing that he could potentially get back. Right. Yeah. Again, it's not healthy, and it, I don't think it needs to be healthy, but it needs to be something to snap him out of it. Right. It's it's uh, it's Ron Livingston going to see the um, hypnotist yeah. in Office Space, and really Office Space, American Beauty, and Fight Club sort of form this weird trilogy in 1999 that in their own way are all kind of saying basically the same things about masculinity right or at least about self-actualization sure but i feel like this like i said two different tracks it wants to be on it wants to have these very specific things about male life and masculinity and whatnot and then it wants to be a profound rumination about the meaning of life and like i said i don't think the meaning of life stuff really hits there's something interesting to be said about the idea that uh people especially men will only embark on on self-betterment regimes in order to 
potentially have sex with better looking people than they already are now, right? <laughs> so like that that that's a you know that's a, that's a good point, and something worth exploring. Or is but, it just the pursuit of a you know it's it's sexual pursuit has been kind of the point from the caveman days on, right? Sure. I mean, male you know from from the very beginning, like that is what chemically drives the male as they develop intellectually throughout history mm-hmm. then things begin to become you know more complicated and more mature and uh and, and more quote-unquote normal or human or whatever you know at least more like apt to you know form a safe and healthy society but sure. if you really want to boil the male mindset down to its like you know reptilian mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of pursuit it, it is a, it has always been about sexual pursuit and in this case it's just personified by this very you know unhealthy lust yeah but it's but it's it's a stand and it's you know it's it's representative of something that's been there since the beginning of the species i'm not yeah i'm not defending it i'm just saying that (laughs) you know chemically chemically it's always been there and you know and occasionally it will manifest itself in some very you know in some destructive ways and the idea that okay the uh the desire to have you know to have sex with someone is the catalyst for your own self-improvement and then you realize on the way that you made yourself better you know re- whether you've uh, achieved your desire of lust or not uh you know that that's that's a good point to make and that, that's interesting but i feel like this movie has has bigger fish to fry and then it doesn't fry them um <laughs> It looks at the big fish and they're like, "Oh, those fish are too big. I can't fit those in the in the pan." Yeah, they don't have a big enough fryer in the. Let's end this metaphor. Um, <laughs> let's can we move on to to Wes Bentley's character here? Too? Please do. Because yeah, yeah. The the Eastern mysticism. This is one of those things where I definitely was thinking to myself, "God, I must have just been eating this shit up when I was sixteen <laughs> years old." And now it's just like, "Oh, this is just a weird kid who probably should be in jail." You know, this is a this is an insane voyeur who's breaking the law every day and every night filming underage women uh, taking their clothes off like he's a uh, not a great guy and i don't think he has really anything important to say and i don't think the bag is beautiful that's interesting uh i mean the bag became such a you know for lack of a better a term joke, it became yeah. such a meme which is obviously something we didn't even have at the time <laughs> yeah. but it became such a talking point and it turned into such it, it, it was immediately the subject for parody anytime someone would talk shit about american beauty they the bag was the first thing yeah and i get it and i think it is very parody a bull but to play a little bit of devil's advocate i mean when you're young and you're stoned and you're getting kind of philosophical particularly when you're i think first starting to experiment with psychedelics um without revealing too much about myself you start to look at things and think to yourself oh i i I never considered that there might be something behind all of like everything i'm looking at Mm -hmm. that they're you know from a metaphysical standpoint that they're you know not necessarily something as like fuzzy as an energy or a life but things aren't always what they seem and at the risk of um, invoking the kind of infamous tagline, sometimes it's worth looking a little bit closer. And yeah. so it would seem that, how old is he supposed to be? He's supposed to be 18, right? Ricky yeah. Fitz? Yeah. So it would seem that for a stoned 18-year-old, that would seem very profound. And the mm-hmm. idea that you had like discovered something or that you'd seen something that everybody else looked at as trash, literally and figuratively, the fact that you could see something beautiful in it, I think would feel pretty profound to someone that age with having had that life experience. And by extension, sort of made us feel that way, right? Yeah, I don't pull nec- back the curtain, man. I don't know if it's necessarily Alan Ball saying that a dancing bag is empirically beautiful or that all of you are stupid if you can't see the beauty in it. I think it's more about him saying that certain people can be 
inquisitive enough to be able to see beauty in the things that most people would dismiss. He he looks at this ugly dancing bag and he sees beauty in it. He looks at a funeral passing by and thinks and it reminds him of seeing a dead body that he and he saw beauty in it. He captures video of a dead bird on the ground and he sees beauty in that and then he sees dead Kevin Spacey at the end in a pool of his own blood and he smiles because he manages to see some beauty in that. Again, this is kind of going back to something I feel about this whole movie which is there's something interesting to talk about in terms of him being this way and seeing these things as a coping mechanism for his home life and dealing with his mom and sure. dealing with his dad and all that shit. And, you know, he, he has to sort of, you know, turn the kaleidoscope over in his life to see the world differently so he can just deal with his shit at home. It feels like that's not good enough for, for Alan Ball and Sam Mendes here. They want to shoot higher and try to make it more profound than it really should be or, or is. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the consensus at the time was that everybody sort of agreed like, oh, Ricky Fitz is the only quote unquote evolved one, right? He's the only one who sees the world for what it really is. Um, Whether they felt that way or not, I I do think that the movie positions him as, you know, the person who is, who who has transcended or who who can see behind the curtain. If that is the intention of that character, then yes, it probably hasn't aged very well. But But if you sort of like look at the character as somebody who is, pretty young, you know, and despite the fact that he is a drug dealer and has had all these experiences and has been in a psychiatric hospital and now has maybe fallen in love and, you know, he's lived some life, but I don't think the movie is necessarily championing his outlook so much as it's saying it's possible for people to have a different outlook. It's possible for people to potentially look closer, to look beyond the veneer. And I think I think that's what he represents. But, you know, his speech is kind of silly. It doesn't give me the same goosebumps I, I, got, I had when I was 16, mm-hmm. but it's still effective I think to see the way that his relationship with Jane develops, the way Jane looks at him when he's giving that speech. At the time, because of how much emphasis the film put on that character, now he had basically the big speech, you know, the big monologue in the movie. Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world, you know, I feel like I can't take it. I think we all sort of felt like, oh, this is the annoying, like Wes Bentley's going to be a movie star now, right? Yeah. Like, look at this kid. Like he's, he, he might be a five tool player. He's willing to go deep. He's willing to go dark. And the fact that he's basically a known name, you know, he's been cast in this very, very important character in this high profile movie. It seemed like them saying a star is born, right? And that is just not how it panned out at all. It, well, it's crazy to think of the, the three main child actors in this movie and none of them had much of a career afterwards. I mean, I guess Mina Savari's had the best career, but it's still, you know, nothing, nothing crazy. I mean, she's been working. I would actually argue that Wes Bentley has managed to forge something for himself, even though he certainly never ended up with the career that I expected for him. And I think a lot of it, it, you know, from his, he's been very candid about the fact that after this movie, he got way too into the Hollywood lifestyle and he got really into drugs and into partying. And I, I think he's very sort of self-aware of, of the fact that he probably had a chance to be a big movie star and, and kind of piddled a lot of it away. Sure. But he's, you know, pop up in the Hunger Games and he'll pop up in Mission Impossible and he'll pop up in TV shows. You know, like he's he's kind of battled his way back to where I think he's a relatively respected character actor now. Mm-hmm. But Mina Suvari, I, I just feel like the industry passed her by. You know, the way the film sexualizes her is is interesting because it's it's positioning to her to be this sex symbol because that's what she represents to our main character. But as an actress, that is going to sort of come to define your Hollywood persona afterwards, right? For better or for yeah. worse. I mean, she mm-hmm. kind of had to, those are the kinds of roles she was probably getting offered after this, even though I think she might have been 17 when this when they made this movie. I know for I a fact Thora Birch was underage. when She was when, 16, I, I think. I think Mina Safari was might have been eighteen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, uh, still both of, very, very young. Yeah, and famously, Thora Birch's parents had to be on set for her 
for her topless scene because she was underage. And Thor Birch was already, you know, a pretty established child actress by this point. I mean, this is really kind of a departure. This was her saying, hey, I'm an adult actress now. I can be in these adult films. I can do nude scenes. I don't think it ever got any better than this for Thor Birch, unfortunately. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that she had a really complicated relationship with her parents, not unlike the sort of Lindsay Lohan or Macaulay Culkin situation. Yeah, they're they're pretty crazy. There's a if anyone anyone's interested, there's a really good article from you know a few weeks or a couple months back called uh, "Where in the World Is Thora Birch?" and it's uh, pretty good. She's she's found some peace, but she's still a little nutty, and her parents were definitely completely batshit insane. So yeah, yeah, it's too bad because she was you know especially as a child actress, she was she was really talented. Yeah, I mean you you start looking through her filmography and you realize she was just you know she was a ubiquitous figure throughout the you know films of the of the early 1990s and uh yeah just never managed to kind of like break out of that child actor ghetto for a number of reasons so i know this is unfair to the movie and i know this breaks the like let's talk about the movie only within (laughs) the movie itself but one of the reasons i I have a hard time believing in the some of the more profound themes of american beauty is that alan ball did true blood which is like a bad very unsubtle just bad show and you know sam mendes has had some good things after American Beauty, but I think we both agree it's it's been mostly somewhat disappointing. His film, so strikes and gutters for sure. Yeah, I I just I, I don't believe that these guys happened upon or or on purpose made this profound masterpiece. And even after the fact, if you sort of read some of the quotes about what this movie is about, they're both pretty cagey about the, what the movie's about, and they kind of hedge their bets, and they don't, uh, you know, they, they don't seem to have strong feelings. So I just wonder how much this movie owes to Thomas Newman. Um, sure. Owes to Conrad Hall, owes to the cast, and owes to just, like, the time and place it came out for, for a lot of its initial reception. And Spacey just jumping headfirst into this thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Spacey is, is really, really good at this, as uncomfortable as it is to watch at some point points he's yeah he, he really gives it his all and it's it's kind of hard to imagine anyone else doing this i mean i i wonder in, in an alternate history if we had sort of what if this was tom hanks right like what if this was george clooney what if this was someone who we all still really like if it was one of the good guys if this movie would be viewed way differently historically right indulge me with a, a very quick episode of Knudsen's Context Corner here, yeah, just so please. we can get ourselves caught up. So so Alan Ball was a, a TV guy, and he'd been working for many years on shows like Sybil, which was my mother's favorite show, favorite sitcom when I was in high school. I remember that vividly, and uh, Grace Under Fire. And despite the fact that he'd worked on shows that were relatively acclaimed and you know quite popular, he apparently was deeply unfulfilled by his experience working on sitcoms. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it's like it's hard to be too <laughs> sympathetic. Oh God, you're you know you're a working writer and you're you know you're getting really well paid by network sitcoms in the golden <laughs> age of net, you know of sitcoms and oh woe is me, the world's smallest violin plays for this successful writer but he apparently was was wildly unfulfilled sounds to me in my research like he had been sort of developing this you know kind of the structure or the skeleton of this idea back when he was a struggling playwright and then set it aside because he couldn't figure out how to do it on the stage and then took his experience working in sitcoms and sort of filtered all that anger into what eventually became the screenplay and basically intended to use it as kind of like a calling card. He thought because it was such a dark taboo subject matter that he could never actually get it made, but he did think it would be 
proof of his voice that he mm-hmm. could use to sort of hopscotch himself into more mainstream fare. By his agent and his various industry connections, he managed to get it in the hands of producers Bruce Cohen and Dan Jinks, who had a relationship with some people at um, DreamWorks, including uh, Glenn Williamson and Scott Cooper, who then got it in front of Steven Spielberg. Spielberg had been intrigued by what Sam Mendes had been doing on the stage because, you know, he'd been working with Rob Marshall and doing these very kind of groundbreaking and exciting reimaginings of Oliver and then eventually Cabaret. And then of The Blue Room with Nicole Kidman, although I believe he was already in production of American Beauty when he did The Blue Room. Mm -hmm. But it's significant that The Blue Room starred Nicole Kidman and was you know, sort of infamous before it even premiered because it was going to have Nicole Kidman nude on stage, which was obviously a very big deal at the time. Kidman introduced Mendes to Tom Cruise, who recommended uh, Conrad Hall to be the cinematographer of this film because Conrad Hall had just shot, is it Without Borders, Without Limits, one of the mm. one of the Prefontaine movies? Yeah, Without the br- the Billy Crudup one. Yeah. So Conrad Hall had shot that, and so Cruise basically recommended him for American Beauty to Mendes. And Spielberg was so excited about the work that Mendes was doing on stage, and Mendes had been wanting to transition into film work anyway. Uh, so he started lobbying really hard for this project. Apparently, DreamWorks went through 20, at least 20 other directors who all turned the project down before they finally got around to Mendes. And apparently, Mendes and Alan Ball got along famously. And the fact that this was basic, you know, this is Mendes's direct feature debut, and this was basically Alan Ball's first produced feature screenplay, I think they likely felt like kindred spirits. Yeah. Kind of sure. learning this as they went along. Mendes obviously learning a lot from Conrad Hall, Alan Ball learning a lot from working with these actors in rehearsals. Spacey and Annette Benning were both apparently Mendes's first choices for these two starring roles. And you don't need to necessarily dance through Spacey's entire career, but up to this point, he was already an Oscar winner. He was very established. He had obviously, you know, come from the stage, you know, learned from from Jack Lemmon and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, had, um, had, you know, done the Disney thing with Iron Will, had done Swimming with Sharks, won his Oscar for The Usual Suspects, had that incredible year in 95 where he does Usual Suspects, Outbreak, and then is the villain in Seven, had done, you know, A, a Time to Kill, and then done L.A. Confidential, which he probably should have got Oscar nominated for, but he's top billed in that film, despite the fact that he's not, you know, that he's probably the third most important character in that movie, had already done the Pixar thing, you know, had already voiced a villain in a Pixar movie. So this guy had kind of done it all. And he had sort of, you know, really proven to everyone that he could not only be a chameleon, but that he could be a leading man of, you know, he'd already done The Negotiator with Samuel L. Jackson. So I'm sure they probably did want Tom Hanks or whoever else in this role. But it seems kind of seems right. Yeah. It in, seems in, right. In, in retrospect that like, yeah, he was at the right place in his career. He was fearless enough to take on a project like this. You know, like you said, it is interesting to look to think from a, um, an alternate history perspective, how this movie might be looked at now if it had been someone else, better or worse, uh, who's to say? But it did seem like he was at the right age, the right place in his career, you know, had the, the you know, the right level of moxie to take on something like this. And I think, you know, he I think he won a very deserved Oscar for this. I, I think when we get around to talking about The Insider, we can certainly discuss whether Russell Crowe may have deserved this over Spacey in 99. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he wins his a year later for Gladiator. The stars certainly aligned for this movie, you yeah. know, whether it was getting the Spielberg's hands and him saying the, the night after he read the script, right? He was like, let's make this movie now. Yeah. The cast was right there. And just little things like, oh, 
this is going to be an easy shoot because we're going to shoot completely on on back lots and, and Burbank and Universal or whatever, right? That probably helped out Sam Mendes and, and having a veteran cinematographer probably also helps, uh, helps Sam quite a bit. And it sounds like Spielberg really coddled Mendes, you know, like you yeah. really... I mean, this movie is about twice, it's only $15 million, but that's about twice what it was originally budgeted at. Mm -hmm. And it feels like whenever, you know, the DreamWorks bean counters would uh, (laughs) take issue with, you know, New Kid on the Block, Mendez, Spielberg would always be there to kind of like swoop in and broker the deal for more money, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that, and then when you you see Mendez, if you go back on YouTube and watch Mendez accepting his Oscar for Best Director for his feature debut, the first person who gives him a, I mean, I think Spielberg may have actually handed him the Oscar. I think he may have presented the directing Oscar that year. And then, you know, the first thing you do is see Spielberg just wrap Mendez in a bear hug like a proud parent afterward, right? Oh, he would, yeah, he would have because of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, that's exactly right. That's yeah. also significant because DreamWorks had very famously lost the Best Picture Oscar a year earlier to mm-hmm. um, Miramax. Shakespeare in Love, yeah. Exactly. So DreamWorks took this Oscar campaign very, very seriously. And that I think they played this thing beautifully. And again, given the five films that were nominated that year, I do still think American Beauty deserves it over those other four films. Eh, maybe The Insider. The Insider is pretty great. It's crazy going through the 99 and how many iconic movies there are that the five best picture nominees are pretty darn underwhelming right right they're they're nowhere near the five best films of 99 yeah so but but yeah they took the oscar campaign very seriously i seem to remember by oscar night 99 it seemed like a little bit of a foregone conclusion it won you know it won five oscars uh on eight nominations Mm -hmm. and it came within one win of becoming the fourth film in oscar history to win the big five if annette benning hadn't lost to Hillary Swank for Boys Don't Cry. This this would be the fourth film, and it would also be the most recent film to win all five. Wow. And it sounds like you feel that Annette Bening's performance hasn't aged very well, just because of the character, or because you feel like she's just too broad and too over the top. I think it's a little too broad and too over the top. But you know, I don't mind the character. I think it's a super interesting character. But the uh, the hallmark scene of her showing the showing the house and then uh, breaking down at the end, it just it, it felt a little too much, a little too actory for me. I mean, she's good, and maybe it's because of the part's just a tad underwritten, but uh, I'm, I'm not I'm certainly not upset that Hillary Swank won over her. Yeah, I mean, Boys Don't Cry is a movie I haven't revisited in many years. I, I do just kind of find myself, A, because Hillary Swank has two Oscars, and B, because Annette Benning has no Oscars. Yeah. I, I do find myself kind of whimsically looking back and be like, oh, if Annette Benning could have just won, then this movie would have gotten the big five, and mm-hmm. that would that would further complicate this movie's legacy. <laughs> yeah. Insofar yeah, yeah. as as it being considered overrated, because mm-hmm. you know nobody considers Silence of the Lambs overrated, for example. Right. But you just you can't overstate what an incredible and unprecedented phenomenon this was in the fall of 1999. I mean, pretty much came out of nowhere, even though it had known movie stars and Steven Spielberg. Spielberg producing it, DreamWorks was still relatively young at this point. And just the subject matter and the fact that it came from an unknown writer or a writer who came from sitcoms and a, and a director who came from the stage, really nothing could have prepared you for how much of a phenomenon this became. And I've been trying to figure out why we all kind of collectively became so fascinated by it and turned it into this surprise hit and Oscar darling. And the thing that I've sort of come to is that this movie basically kind of like played like a four-quadrant mainstream crowd-pleaser 
because it kind of had a little something for everybody. I mean, it was rated R, but, you know, teenagers found it interesting and kind of hip and kind of sexy and kind of dangerous. And adults kind of found it melancholy and sort of sad and sort of funny. You know, like, again, this is a movie I went and saw with my mom. And I think that a lot of people who are around that age probably did. And it may have been relatively uncomfortable. But this seemed to be the kind of film that we could all find, you know, see ourselves in or find something to latch on to. And it was weird enough and just sort of provocative enough to really feel artsy, right? It was this, it was a DreamWorks movie, it was a studio movie, and yet it almost felt like an art house experiment. And I think we all were fascinated by that confluence. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're absolutely right, Ed. A little something for everyone. Everyone could interpret it in their own way. It could be, you know, like you said, youngsters could find some titillation and some rebelliousness in it. And obviously there's the suburban malaise that that sort of uh, middle-aged people could feel. And it's a movie Um, that doesn't demonize pot smoking, you know? Like, the pot smoking is actually portrayed as being kind of evolved. And kind of mature good. and potentially yeah. healthy, actually. So. Yeah, and I think this ties into sort of the way I feel about the movie, which is it it really tries to have it all ways, and it, it allows itself to be a bit of a, a Rorschach test and kind of an empty one at that. It doesn't really mean anything or signify anything, but it, it gives people enough rope to come to their own conclusions and find maybe some profundity where there might not be any. So you think that the movie is a lot of sound and fury, ultimately, ultimately signifying nothing. Like you think it's it's in yeah. in pursuit of something profound that ultimately is a is an empty vessel. Yeah, I don't put words in your mouth. But but it's a nice vessel, right? It's a good looking vessel. I mean, the, the, another thing we always talk about is how important it is for for great movies to nail the ending to stick the landing and this movie's very you know elegaic climax is uh really well done and it's 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 pretty moving and it's emotional and it's almost dreamlike right so i i do respect how they ended the film and, and when people walk out of the theater after seeing something like that like yeah it gives them a lot to chew on and it's obviously gonna be something that people talk about so i i guess i'm not entirely surprised that it became such a phenomenon and also the fact that it's just kind of different it's different from what people had seen or what people were expecting from sort of a glossy studio picture packaged as a as a transgressive art house film yeah it's true you can't overstate the effectiveness of the ending and it's it's significant because that is not the way the script ends allegedly and that's not the way the original cut of the film ended apparently i don't know how much you've read about this but apparently there is a whole coda that involves colonel frank fitz framing his son and Jane for the murder of Lester. Oh, that would have been way worse. Yeah. Right. So there's this whole other thing where they're in jail, where they're in in court, and they're and they're being framed for this murder, and and that's what sort of ties together with that opening, with that prologue, where we're sort of led to believe that Jane is um, compelling Ricky to murder her father. Mm-hmm. I think they ultimately made the right decision in realizing that this was a. It sounds from what Mendez has said, and I remember listening to the commentary track when I bought the DVD in, you know, 2000 or whatever it was, it, it sounds like they realized relatively late in the game that this film was tonally on screen much different than it had been reading. And it was going to be a much more kind of whimsical affair. Apparently the script was much more acidic and much more cynical. And what they shot was actually much more kind of like hard edged and, and darker. Yeah. And it was really going to end with this sharp and almost depressing ending where, where the kids end up basically going, going to jail. Yeah. And the, the, the mystery, the crime itself is not the point in the film. No. Not at all. It's about it's about a 
you know, a level of, of transcendence or about like, you know, self, self-actualization or whatever. And I think despite how you feel about the path he took to get there, the coda of the film delivers it in a pretty elegant way. Absolutely. And a lot of it has to do with Thomas Newman and Conrad Hall. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this <laughs> the score for this film. It's like alien almost. It's, well, it did weird. at the time. Now, now, you know, it was so influential. And the seeds of influence that, you know, the tentacles of influence over the course of the last 20 years. Thomas Newman, I, I you know, I personally feel is one of the most underrated composers maybe of all time, mm-hmm. just despite the fact that even people who dislike this movie usually compliment his incredible score. Yeah. You know, and just using all sorts of crazy instruments, you know, marimbas and xylophones, xylophones. and bongos. And, yeah. And it, it became almost, you know, he actually started to do kind of like cover versions of this style. I mean, he almost started to devolve into self-parody eventually. You know, 20 years later, I think it still is is unbelievably effective and just singular, extraordinarily unique and esoteric. Matt, we've been going on for about an hour. You got you got some you got some more notes you want to hit before we uh head on out? Just can't say enough about Conrad Hall who won an Oscar for this film. I mean, he he was already a legend, you know, he shot fucking Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Cool Hand Luke and and he was pretty late in his career by this point. I mean, he shot this, won an Oscar, shot um, Road to Perdition for Mendez, won another Oscar, and then died. So th- this was the end, but what an incredible way to go out. And even though he had a very diverse career up to this point, this seemed felt like something new for him. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible. I mean, I've, I've never you know taken a cinematography class or TA'd in a cinematography class where Conrad Hall's work didn't come up and where there wasn't you know special care taken in pointing out the fact that he is basically the master of the soft key light and the way that he lights faces of this movie even even though it's a movie that doesn't feature that many close-ups mm-hmm. if you go back and watch it mendez is really all about kind of letting those things a lot of these scenes play out in the wides especially the probably the best scene of the movie which is the the dinner table scene right Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and if you watch that scene, even though there's coverage of it, the most important beats of the scene take place in the master in the white, which the, is just the, a, the space is the most important thing. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And the and the relationships of the different actors within the proscenium and mm-hmm. the way that you know when Kevin Spacey stands up and walks across the room, it's very intentional. The way that Annette Benning, you know, just recoils ever so slightly. I mean, there's there's a lot of intention there, and it feels in a good way. Like it's been designed by someone who comes from the stage. And that scene is is always one that we look at cinematography classes. And it's also one that I have often found uh, recreated in a lot of acting classes I've taken over the years. Interesting. It's just a perfect one act play, right? It's just a perfect yeah. scene with a perfect trajectory and incredibly playable beats. Uh, it's just it, to me, it's just the standout scene in the movie, and you can just grab that composition and look at it and know everything you need to know about Conrad Hall's approach. And you can just you can teach film students how to go about three point lighting and how to light a dinner table scene by just you know just grabbing a still. In terms of where Mendez and Ball have gone from here over the last twenty years, I mean, you mentioned the fact that Ball basically went back to television, right? He went and created six feet under and then he created true blood mm-hmm. and that's i mean he's that's he's a he's an hbo guy right i mean he's it's weird HBO that he guy, yeah. it's weird that he has nothing but bad things to say about his experience working in television before american beauty but it seems like he's had so much success and so much freedom i guess it's because it's not tv it's hbo huh? <laughs> yeah when you do one hit on hbo and you know he did six feet under hbo just lets you do whatever you want for the rest of your life which is which must be a very nice freeing thing for someone like that yeah. um but yeah it is interesting i mean d- does he have any screenwriting you know, feature film credits besides this 
Uh, yeah, he? he's he, got he, something, right? He wrote a film called Towelhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, he wrote a TV movie called Virtuoso. That's that's really it. For I, I could have sworn there'd be like one big thing that I was forgetting about. But if you look at his filmography, it's uh, a bunch of episodes of Grace Under Fire, a bunch of episodes of Sybil, American Beauty. He wins a freaking Oscar, and then it's it's a TV series. It's Oh Grow Up. It's Six Feet Under. It's True Blood. A show called Here and Now. Here and which, Now, which he must that was last... an HBO show. Huh? Interesting. Okay, never heard of it. Never heard of either but but that, that that's really interesting because at the time it really felt it just felt like so many of these people were getting anointed it's like oh my god sam mendes is the next big thing alan ball he just beat fucking pt anderson for you know for his magnolia script alan <laughs> ball is the new hot screenwriter wes bentley he's he's the new hot young star and a lot of this stuff just didn't pan out when it comes to mendes he he really floundered for a long time and ultimately ended up getting redeemed by James Bond of all people, right? I know, it's just crazy. I mean, a lot of there's a lot of love for the Road to Perdition out there. I haven't revisited in many years. I probably am overdue. You know, it, it's interesting. That was his first, I mean, he kind of had a hand in helping to make Daniel Craig a movie star because Daniel Craig is kind of a standout. So mm-hmm. maybe it was inevitable they would come back together. But I bet you if you asked people who knew Sam Mendes' entire filmography and were taking everything into account and just put a gun to their head right now and said, what's Sam Mendes' best movie? I bet you most people would say Spectre and not American Beauty. You mean Skyfall. No one would say Spectre. I'm sorry, I keep saying Spectre. <laughs> Skyfall first. Yes. I bet you most people probably... Th- think that because it's not fashionable at all to champion American Beauty, even though I do think it's still his best film. You think it's better than Skyfall? I think so, yeah. And, you know, Crazy. of course you know how, my, how I feel about James Bond and how important that series is to me and how much I adore Skyfall and Daniel Craig in it. But yeah, I think American Beauty is a better movie than Skyfall. Interesting. But again, I think, I, I, this... I think Skyfall is his first best and I think American Beauty is his second. Okay. So. And then yeah. we'll be third, Revolutionary Road? Uh, you know, I remember liking Road to Perdition when it came out just fine. I I wonder how it holds up. I don't know. And Jarhead is is fine, I guess. Yeah, um, with a lowercase f. Yeah, I mean, none of these movies are just out and out horrible. Well, Spectre is pretty fucking horrible. Um, Spectre's pretty bad, but I, it's, I don't it's, really... It's just kind of an uninspiring filmography for someone who came out so hot out of the gate and someone yeah. who we all sort of just implicitly accept as a very talented guy. Well, I guess I guess that was my point for bringing it up, is that he comes yeah. out of the gate, he's red hot, he's the you know he's obviously the hottest guy in, in, in stage work, and then he becomes, you know, he wins an Oscar on his very first film, like, all right, here we go. Big new voice that Spielberg has, you know, personally chosen <laughs> to be the heir apparent. And then Road to Perdition is fine, and it's a hit, and it's kind of fun, and it's him working with Tom Hanks and then I feel like Jarhead is is really a big shoulder shrug and then Revolutionary Road is Kate Winslet and DiCaprio coming together for the first time since Titanic and that's implicitly a big deal and then that movie is just such a slog I mean and I'm not even saying it's a bad movie I'm just saying it's a tough sit Yeah. and I think he was even married wasn't he married to Kate Winslet by that point I think he was married to her when they made that film they're not married anymore Yeah. but I think I think they were. I think you're right. Yeah. I think they were married. And then, you know, that kind of Michael Shannon gets his Oscar nomination. And then we can always thank that film for sort of really bringing him to prominence. And then he does Away We Go, which is the Dave Eggers script, right? Yeah. And that's, uh, uh, with that's Krasinski Maya and Maya Rudolph. Yeah. And that movie's totally fine and totally forgettable. And then, yeah, then he goes to Bond. And when he made Skyfall, and Skyfall ended up being this enormous hit and this big sort of critical phenomenon, it was like, ah, all right, it, it took something like this. It took this big populist property for Mendez to finally sort of like find his voice again, right? And then he takes all that goodwill and throws it in the trash. 
with Spectre, which is unfortunate. But I will say he he has something coming up, which uh, I think we're all quite excited about. On the twentieth, you know, in the twentieth anniversary of his first film, he's got a war movie coming up this year, which sounds very intriguing. It's him working with great the great Roger Deakins, who in his own way is kind of the heir apparent to Conrad Hall. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rumblings are that nineteen seventeen might be a war movie that takes place all in one shot. Well, I'm banking on it being good because I own Sam Mendes in our fantasy film league and he not only directed it but he has the sole screenwriting credit on it it feels like we always just want what's best for sam like since 1999 i've always wanted this guy to you know make good on that early promise and he's gone back and done great stage work and he he directed a, a play uh last year with patty considine the name of it escapes me but it was you know won a bunch of tonys and apparently was extraordinarily well directed and it's not controversial to say this guy has an incredible amount of talent it's, i feel like he just has trouble figuring out where to put it yeah well the, the the good thing good thing is he was a young man when he did american beauty and he's still only 54 years old so he's got you know he's, he's got a lot of career left in him so hopefully this uh 1917 film will be the step back in the right direction ultimately here 20 years on you think the film a little overrated and probably uh didn't deserve its its best picture win I, it's a little overrated and certain you know given what we know now about 1999 yeah i think i put a number of movies in front of it and i think we we will or at least should do our 1999 film rankings at the end of this oh 100 and this would obviously would have been number one on my list in 1999 well i've been searching through so many hard drives trying to find the list you made yeah because i used i'd write little blurbs oh p.s i also i was writing i was doing uh, film reviews for our school newspaper at this point because we were we were in high school and i remember vividly that um i think he was the vice principal or the dean of students the guy who was the dean of students we we had completely polar opposite reactions to this movie i loved it i thought it was a masterpiece he thought it was completely overblown he thought the colonel fitz character was the most cartoonish thing he'd ever seen on the screen Mm. so we came to blows and by came to blows i mean we had a you know a very respectful um you know argument about this particular film and so they actually they actually paired up our reactions he wrote a review and i wrote a review and they actually put them together on the back page of the newspaper uh (laughs) in september of of 1999 and they put a picture of us me with my thumb up and him with his thumb down that's incredible. So somewhere in a box in a storage unit, I've got a I, I've got a, a copy of that paper that I'm sure is is falling apart. And somewhere on a hard drive, I have my top ten list of 1999, and I'm 99% sure American Beauty was the top. I'm guessing I had Fight Club over American Beauty, but I'm I'm not sure. Well, it's funny you mentioned Fight Club. Yeah, you want to tease what our what our next uh, next movie is going to be, Matt? Okay. So before we get to Fight Club, we got one more thing to do in October, which is to pair up The Limey and Three Kings. I think that sounds like a good idea. Two films that would seem to have little or nothing to do with one another. I have some thoughts and I'm sure you do as well. Mm-hmm. So once we get past those two sort of forgotten masterpieces, it's time to get on to a, a film that may or may not have been your number one film of 1999 and probably was my second or third. And I could very easily see it occupying the exact same space on our list 20 years later. I'm excited to watch Fight Club. I watched it dozens of times probably in the first five years after its release and I don't think I've seen it in decade so i am really excited to give it a go um and see see how i feel about it 20 years on so and you know all these other movies too i'm really excited for the limey and three kings all right everyone this has been retro spectating 1999 on we like movies say goodbye matt goodbye goodbye